This is the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, episode 32. Whoa. You're listening to the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, the number one resource for running a profitable home recording studio. Now your hosts, Brian Hood and Chris Graham. Welcome to the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast. I am your host, Brian Hood. I'm here with my co-host, Chris Graham. Chris Graham, how you doing, buddy? Hey guys, I'm really excited to be uh, recording the podcast today. This is one of my favorite things to do. And we just hit a milestone of 60,000 total downloads. Damn! For the podcast. That's pretty sick. I'm pretty happy about that. I'm like, this has been kind of rad. Like I have had a ton of people from the podcast reach out. I'm having breakfast with someone tomorrow. Um, Had a bunch of uh, people that have started hiring me from the podcast to master the record. So it's been... I talk to somebody from the podcast at least once a day lately, which has been great. That's sick. I talk to them every day because a lot of the podcast listeners are the students of the Profitable Producer course, which I talk to all the time. Well, today's episode is a good one because this will affect all of you. Uh, if you're just starting out or if you're experienced, there's probably something in this episode that you're going to pull away from it as something to try out, I think. Yeah. Because in this episode, we're going to talk about six different types of of studio income or audio income, however you want to put this. We're going to go down six different areas and then ideas around that, some pros and cons. It'll be a pretty good episode. Yeah. Well, and I think the big inspiration for this episode is that, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you are either full-time audio or you want to go full-time audio and you have a problem and the problem is consistent income. That's everyone's problem. Um, That's the hard part of doing this for a living. And what I find is that a lot of people that struggle with this are approaching building a business from the standpoint of only having one type of income. And the name of the game here is survive. The name of the game is keep the doors open, keep the lights on. And to do that, sometimes you have to take on more than just one type of project. Yep, diversification. Yeah, diversification. Now, I know some of you are thinking like, wait a minute, isn't that the opposite of niching? Isn't that the opposite of what they've said in the past? Yes, it is. But niching is not what you just do immediately. You don't just walk in and say, I'm the guy for X, Y, and Z. If you can do that and you have the guts to do that, good for you. But for most people, I'd say 99% of them, you have multiple income streams. And then eventually, if one of them takes off, you niche down to just that one single income stream. And also, you can have more than one income stream and still be in a niche. You niche down by some sort of service or some sort of genre or specializing in some sort of group of people. Totally true. Yeah. So again, this is another advice buffet. We have a lot of those, uh, especially lately, because these are fun to make. uh, And there's a little bit in here for everybody. You're not from the South, but in the South, every family occasion, we had kind of a potluck dinner type thing where everyone brought a little of their own food. And that way there was a lot. Oh, it's the same in Ohio. Yeah, it's great. So this is what that episode is. Yeah. So I was going to make a joke about like green bean casserole. But it just didn't come together. I was like, "Awful!" I'll come up with this joke while I'm talking, and (laughs) nothing happened. (laughs) Anyways, shout out to Green Bean Casserole. You're delicious. Yep. And before we get into today's topic, I do want to say we are always looking for podcast ideas. If there's a topic that you want to hear us elaborate more on, or explain a bit better, or something that we haven't covered that you would love to hear, just email us podcast at the six figure home studio dot com. That's the S I X figure home studio, not the number podcast at the six figure home studio.com put in the subject line podcast idea or podcast topic or something. Cause we love reading through those and seeing what kind of stuff you come up with. Uh, because you know, it's hard to come up with new episode topics every week that we haven't covered before. <laughs> it's true, but it doesn't get any less fun. That's true. That's true. 
So the first type of studio income is the type of studio income that most people only focus on. It's their dream. It's what they think is going to make them successful. And 99% of the time, not the case. That is huge one-off projects. I think if you ask most audio engineers, what's your dream? They would say, well, if I could just get this huge project from this big famous band, then all of my dreams will come true. All of my cash flow issues will go away and I'll be in demand every day for the rest of my life. It doesn't often work out like that. Yeah, very rarely. Very rarely. So that's an important thing for us to talk about. And we had somebody email us in uh, recently that they were, were mentioning things they loved and about the podcast, but also making fun of us for things that I say all the time. And I'm going to have to repeat myself again. If I were preaching to myself from 10 years ago, I would say to myself 10 years ago, bro, huge one-off projects will not solve all your problems. It's true. And I, I would have had my mind blown by that statement. I thought that was the whole point of this business was like find a 10000 or $30,000 client. Yeah. So let's first define what we're talking about with huge projects. The obvious one would be full lengths or albums with artists, specifically label projects that maybe have a larger budget than your typical independent artist. But there's also things like movies. Uh, we had Warren Hewitt on the podcast recently, and he has, at least in the past, done a lot of movie projects. And I am sure that those paid off pretty well. Another type of huge one-off project would be some sorts of sync licensings. Not all of it, but some sync licensings deals are you write a song, someone picks it up, you get a big fat check for it, and that's the only payment you get for that. They just basically buy the rights to that song. And then the final type, at least that we came up with here on the outline, is just production work. What do you mean by production work, Chris? Well, I think my problem with the big, huge one-off projects business model is that often what that means is, is you're all singing, all dancing. You, yeah. you are the tracking engineer. You are getting songwriting credits. You're producing. You're editing. You, you're doing it all. And my problem with that isn't that those projects are bad. My problem is when all of your income for, say, a one or two or three month period is reliant on one person. That's scary because inevitably in our industry, what happens is someone said they'll pay by a certain date and they don't. Yeah. You could really have your personal life and your business ruined by one project if it falls through or if they don't pay or if something comes up where you don't get that money that you were depending on. Yeah. That's where troubles come in. You're literally done for like a month or two before your next project starts and you just sort of sit around and wait. That's a terrifying way to make a living. And there are some ways to improve upon that by, you know, it's a non-refundable down payment to get into a project like that or things along those lines that we've talked about. But man, you know, when I was producing for a living, that was the most miserable part of the job was I would go after huge clients. It'd be, you're the only person I'm working with for the next two months and I'd get paid late or I wouldn't get paid at all. You get infatuated with artists. It's that whole infatuation thing where you are so stuck on winning that one client or that one project that if it falls through, you feel devastated. Or if it doesn't come through when you think it's going to come through, you start being naggy towards the person and you put them, you're off-putting because you're so desperate to get that one big job instead of maybe some of these other areas of income that we're going to talk about in today's episode. Yeah. So, you know, back to sort of our premise here, the thing we all struggle with or 99% of us struggle with is consistent income. That's the scariest thing, especially when, you're, when your income isn't that great. You know, when you have a smaller revenue from your studio, 
if you miss out on a project like this, we're talking 10, 20, 30, 40, 50% of your yearly revenue because it fell through with one person. And you don't have options when those types of projects fall through and they will. There's not like a, a level that you're going to get to where you're like, yes, I'm working with platinum artists and my projects don't fall through anymore. That's not a thing. Like it's probably going to get worse because you're going to have more bureaucracy involved and labels and uh, shoot, everything was a go. And then some weird guy at the label freaked out. More cooks in the kitchen. More cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. So let's talk about these other options. What are the other different types of income other than huge one-off projects? Yep. So the second type of audio income uh, that you could look to uh, in a studio business or any sort of audio business are small one-off projects. And this is this is exactly what you do, Chris. Your yeah. your entire business is built around small one-off projects under five hundred dollars, typically. And this includes mastering uh, for you specifically. You do mastering, but this also would include editing. Some people that do editing work, so drum editing or guitar editing or vocal editing or pitch correction or podcast editing. I mean. Yeah, that's that's a whole under other career in and of itself. Yeah. But there's also pre-production work or demo work. These are all there's all sorts of ways you can do small one-off projects. But the beauty of these types of projects are you can be creating a more consistent source of income because A, you don't have so much on the line. B, they're easier to convert because anytime the the dollar amount, or I would say most times that the dollar amount is lower, you're gonna have a higher conversion rate, meaning, you know, for every person you talk to for a $10,000 project, you're not going to convert very many of those people. You're lucky to convert 25% of those people, yeah. depending on how deep you consider the conversation going. But with small one-off projects, you're probably either, if you're not converting a higher percentage, you just have at least a lot higher flow of those deals coming your way because there's a lot more $250 projects going around than $25,000 <laughs> projects. Yeah. So case in point, like, let's say that your day rate, I'm just going to throw out an even number here, is $500. And you're trying to decide whether to go after lots of huge one-off projects or going the smaller project model. Let's say that maybe 80% of the time things go reasonably well with large projects. And 20% of the time, you either don't get paid, the project gets canceled at the absolute last minute, or you get paid like 90 days after you're supposed to get paid. Man, I've had it go way longer than 90 days when I was producing. So here's the thing. If 20% of the time that doesn't work out, that means that out of the 12 months of the year, about five or six weeks of your time just evaporates. It just disappears because something went wrong. When you are doing, and, and that, that can have a, obviously a massive impact on your cash flow. When you're doing small one-off projects, let's say you were booked at your day rate, say $500 for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you still have the same success rate, if 80% of the time things work out, worst case scenario, you take an extra day off for the weekend. And the small one-off projects, if you can generate a lot of demand for them, if, you, if it's something where you're getting a client in and out the door with a smile on their face once a day at least, suddenly your cash flow looks totally different because you've spread your cash flow out over a lot of different people as opposed to centralizing it in one person. And like, let's be honest here. When you have one person who decides whether you get paid this month, you have a job. It's not a business. It's a job. When you spread it out over a number of people, you know, you know, in a given week, it's, I'm, I'm working on at least an al a different album every day. I'm starting and finishing an album probably once a day every week. And it's been that way for years. 
So in a situation like that, almost everything goes through to completion with me and it's 99.9%. But if something does get weird or, you know, the band breaks up in the middle of the project or something bizarre like that, it's not such a big deal. Or if the client just ends up being kind of crazy, it's not such a big deal because it's only affecting a small portion of my income. So the small one-off project thing, I'm just a huge fan of because you can not be so dependent on one person. And we've all been here. I'm, if you've been in professional audio for any number, amount of time, you know that you eventually meet that one client who is really, really, really flaky. Yeah. And it ruins your personal life. Well, this doesn't come without its negatives though. Small projects has a huge potential to suck up your time. Yeah. And this is something that happened to you when you first started ramping up your mastering business. Oh yeah. You hit a huge wall uh, that, sh- that you couldn't really fulfill the work you were getting because the communication, the back and forth, the project naming, the files, the labeling, all this stuff took up a shitload of your time. And if you don't have the ability to get past that roadblock or that hurdle, you're going to have to jump over doing these small one-off projects. You're going to spend more of your time doing administrative work than you will actually working in the studio. So that's the big negative with small one-off projects that you have to get around. Yeah. I would say that the big negative with huge one-off projects is obviously the inconsistency and the name of the game for success is to have a great contract where you're getting paid a large down payment. With small projects, the name of the game is efficiency. If you are inefficient, if you drag your feet, if you are just not good at organization, you're going to struggle mightily on a business model that relies on lots of small projects. And I will say, uh, if you do large projects, you have experienced a lot of setbacks with that. Uh, You probably want to go to YouTube, check out my video that I recently released called The Four Rules of Getting Paid Without Getting Screwed Over or Having Awkward Conversations. You can find, just go look for the Six Figure Home Studio on YouTube, you'll find that video. But on that, I really do walk you through a pretty in-depth way to make sure you aren't getting screwed over. So if that is a consistent thing you're experiencing, uh, that video will be definitely helpful to you. Just to wrap up this second one here, small projects, small one-off projects. One uh, major bonus that you have with small one-off projects is you have a lot more referral work coming your way. Yes. The reason is you have a lot more word of mouth advertisement. Every single client you work with, well, if they need the service that you offer, they're going to recommend it to their friend or an acquaintance or somebody that they know. If you've done a great job, they're going to refer you to them. And if you do massive projects, you may only work with 10 or 20 clients a year. If you do small projects, you may work with 10 or 20 clients a month or more. And if that's the case, you have 10 or 20 little soldiers out there fighting for you every single month. That's 100, 200 people per year that has the ability to refer work to you, especially if you're encouraging that referral and not just waiting for it. Yeah. Do not underestimate the power of having an army of evangelists because you have a business model that supports small projects. You know, it's a wild thing. I just crossed a hundred five-star reviews for my business on Facebook the other day. Um, And we've got well over that on Google as well. Congratulations. Thank you so much. The only way that would have ever happened is if I were able to make a lot of people happy, you know, as opposed to my old business model, you know, 10, 12, 13, 14 years ago with, with production, you know, I would work with less than, uh, less than a 10th of the number of clients that I do probably less than, than a 20th. All right, let's move on to number three, repeat customers. What do you mean by repeat customers as far as a type of studio income, Chris? Well, I think a lot of people starting out have in their mind, I'm going to work with 
some crazy big band. That's the dream. I want to work with fill in the blank here. Some gigantic band that's world famous. So you work with that band and then you work with another band and that's really it. You put your fingerprints on them and then they move on. And I think in our world, the only way in our modern world, the only way to be really successful is to kill it with repeat customers. And the reason is this. It takes too long for word of mouth to work for you to get enough customers that use you one time and then move on with their life for you to build a successful business. Number two is it costs too much money to use paid marketing to find a customer and only have them hire you once. Yep, this is why you've seen every software company on earth move from a one-off paid licensing model to a subscription model. And it's because it's extremely difficult to keep going out and finding customers. It's a lot easier to find a customer, get a smaller amount of money, but have them on for a long amount of time. That creates stability month to month. And that's kind of what we're, we're suggesting in this, this type of income is less money per client, but consistently have them coming back time and time and time and time again. And one way to do that is for an artist that comes at you, they want to do an album. They can't necessarily afford you. Their budget's not high enough. Their budget's not big enough to afford what you would normally charge for an album, AKA a huge one-off project. Instead, you propose something to them. You say, hey guys, I'd love to work with you. Your budget's not quite where it needs to be, but here's what I propose to you. I say that you come to me once a month, we'll get a song done. We'll do it to the best of our ability. It'll be this much money. And we come back a month later and do another song. That way you have consistent songs coming out to your fans. You're able to get your full length done over the next 10 months. And you're able to do this without breaking the bank. At the end of the day, it's all about the budget for a lot of these artists. And instead of losing that project, you have a much higher chance of winning the project when you propose an idea like this versus just saying, sorry, you can't afford me. Yeah, so that's an amazing idea because the big thing here is I think success is having a stable of people who you are their go-to person. Once you have enough people that consider you their go-to person, you have a successful business. And when you are really focusing on, on the repeat customers, that's the only way to do it. So I say on my, on my website, for better or for worse, I kind of wish I had written this a little bit better, but my motto is I want to win your business for life. But I tell that to people, like my goal is I'm trying to build relationships with people and be their mastering engineer for the rest of their life. And by doing that, by making sure they leave happy and that they have a good taste in their mouth, which as anyone that's ever hired a mastering engineer knows, you very rarely have a good taste in your mouth (laughs) after you work with one. Um, By making sure that happens, I've been able to build up a huge number of people who I'm their go-to guy. I'm a member of the team. And as a result of that, these people come back every month. So I've got people that I see 10 times a year. Yeah. And that's huge for stabilizing your income and stop having those huge spikes and lulls in your income. Full disclosure, I've actually never worked with a mastering engineer more than one time in my entire career. I don't think that's uncommon. I think that's most people. I can't tell you how many times I I get someone that's like, you know, we had this other guy that mastered our last record. He was such a jerk. And, you know, we asked for revisions and never heard back from him. And like, everyone's got that story. A lot of times though, it's not out of spite. It's not out of just being a bad person. A lot of it's the overwhelm that I talked about earlier where with small projects, there's a lot of administrative work. There's a lot of roadblocks that get in the way of efficiently doing your job. And sometimes you have to let things slide or let emails go unread just out of necessity to stay. You're, all you're doing is struggling to keep your head above water sometimes in a mastering studio from what I've seen in, in my experience. And so I can't blame a lot of people. It's just you have to be able to get past that if you want to, to 
be successful in the small one-off project world? Well, not just successful if you want to be not miserable. And the funny thing about that, and I think this is true not just in mastering, but if you are miserable, if you're completely overwhelmed by the small projects coming in, your work will suffer. Your job is to have great judgment and to, to do things where you're not biased, where you're not like, oh, I need to prove myself, so I'm going to boost everything above 10K by 17 dB. Ooh. So I think when you get overwhelmed and you get emotional, you start making bad decisions and you stop getting approvals. That's true. So yeah, that, that's a good point. You do have to be able to keep your head on your shoulders and have a good personal life in order to make healthy decisions, not just as a mastering engineer, but any kind of engineer. Yep. So repeat customers, I think, um, I think one that is kind of overlooked are things I mentioned earlier, like podcasts. We do a podcast weekly. There are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of podcasts out there now. And just about every podcast has the editor that they work with. And that editor gets a new episode every single week. That means they get four episodes a month. They're getting paid consistently by this one client. And there are even editors that work exclusively with multiple podcast clients. So there's a, there's a niche for you if you want to get into that. But there's also TV. There's also radio. There's, also, there's just all sorts of different types of repeat customers that you can get. And it's not just artists. So I don't want you to be limited by thinking that you're only going to be working with artists but when you're looking for repeat customers, again, it's up to you to decide what this is, but make sure you have an open mind and don't shoot something down before you get a chance to really try something out. You may end up liking some sort of alternate niche like that. All right, let's move on to number four on our list now, and that is passive income. This is the holy grail for any studio owner because this is something that really, as far as most of my career, I never thought this was an option in any way, shape, or form. That was the big negative. You're trading dollars for hours. And if you don't put in the hours, you're not getting the dollars. And the reality is there are some forms of passive income in our career, but they're very difficult to get. And depending on your skills and abilities, you may not be able to really get into this type of area. So this is just for a select group of people, but we still thought we should cover it because there may be some potential in there for you to move into this area. Yeah. So I would have to preface this of, I dream of passive income. I do not have it yet. That is not an area that I have mastered, but there are, are a couple types, not always related to audio, but hey, if you want to make music for a living, who cares if it's audio related? If you have a situation where say you rent a house that you own and you make a thousand bucks a month and it allows you to do what you want instead of having a job, more power to you. That's awesome. Yep. So let's talk about some of our options when it comes to passive income for audio professionals. So the first thing we talk about when it comes to passive income is royalties. What kind of royalty opportunities are there? Okay, so the best type of royalty you could possibly have, the one that everybody wants, is you're at a local coffee shop, you're an audio engineer, an open mic starts, somebody gets up, they start singing, it's the most beautiful thing you've ever heard. It makes Adele sound untalented. And you say, oh my gosh! You meet this person, they've never recorded in their life, you bring them to the studio, you help them write the songs, you produce the songs, you sign a spec deal with them where you own a large part of the masters, something like that. The songs get released, they go on the radio, they're multi-platinum, and every time that song gets played on the radio, somebody sends you money. Yep, mailbox money. Mailbox money. So any type of royalty, there, there are a number of them but that we're not going to get into on this episode because they're so hard to get, but that type of income is incredible. Yeah, I have a friend of mine who does that. That's his business model. He finds 
talented artists. He works with them from start to finish. He fronts the money for the demo work. He does album quality demos to pitch to labels so they get picked up. And he's got, I think, 23, 24, maybe 25 number one radio singles now. And he makes a killing doing this. So this is definitely uh, a great way to have passive income. But the reality is, it's not really passive. You're just front loading the work and you're getting paid on the back end. So I don't know of a lot, very many truly passive ways of getting income, but that is a, I'd call that a semi-passive if anything. Yeah. Well, I think with, with all forms of passive income, there is a front loading of the work, at least to some degree. That's true. Even when we get into the next one, we talk about the next one, which is real estate. Um, that, that is more passive, but the reality is you still have to have some sort of capital and that capital you had to work hours for. <laughs> so at the end of the day, there's no such thing as truly passive income in my opinion. But let's talk about real estate for a second. There yeah. are a number of ways to slice this. This is a massive topic, which we're not going to get into today. This is a topic that I truly do enjoy though. I do like talking about real estate. I like real estate investing. But when it comes to studio owners, how does this relate to the average studio owner? Well, I'll tell you a story about a producer that a friend of mine worked with. I'm not going to mention names, but he has a house that he purchased for his studio years and years ago. He's had a good amount of success and he actually moved to a bigger home, but he left his studio in the basement or the exterior dwelling of that home. And now he rents the home out to his assistant engineer and he gets passive income via rent through his assistant engineer. And he has someone that takes care of the studio and he still works out of that studio. He just commutes to the studio, which is his old house as a landlord. So that's one interesting way that I've seen someone make this work, but there's a ton of other ways that you can do this. You could essentially just fully rent out the facility, your old facility to someone, get that mailbox money from your facility. That's one way to do it. There are ways that you could rent out rooms in your studio if you have multiple control rooms and you're just getting rent checks from the other producers. When you start talking about real estate, a big part of building passive income through any career that you choose is taking your savings or taking some part of your money and investing that into, if you're doing real estate, buying rental properties, getting them rented out for the right rent to where you're actually getting cash flow, and then focusing on what you can do to earn money during your time and then keep putting savings back into real estate. But we're not going to keep talking about real estate because that's not what this topic of this, this podcast. If you want to learn more about real estate, go listen to the Bigger Pockets podcast. But the third way, or really one of the, my favorite ways to really talk about now when it comes to real, uh, passive income for audio professionals is sync licenses. Things like Audio Jungle, which I'm not a big fan of, or things like Soundstripe, which I am a big fan of. And these are sites that you can take your music that you've worked your ass off on, and you can just put them up on these sites, and you get a cut of each download or each sale, depending on which site you choose. And at the end of the day, it, this can add up to a substantial amount of money, depending on how many tracks you have out there, depending on the quality of those tracks, and depending on if you can determine what people want to download for the work that they're doing. At the end of the day, I know people that are making multiple thousand dollars per month completely passively based on music that they've already put on the, in the catalog of these websites. They're getting that every single month, and it can be a huge in stabilizing your income and having a nice floor, meaning your income will never drop below this amount. And that, that is a nice peace of mind for any studio owner. Yeah. So I think with the passive income conversation, I think one of the interesting things I want to bring up here is why are we in audio? I would say for a lot of people, sometimes the dream, and I think this is an unhealthy dream, is fame. It's respect. It's, I'm really good at this and I'm the man and people respect me. That's a any career or profession though. You are right. But I tend to find in audio that we tend to be a little bit more susceptible to that. And I think if that's you, you know, if you really look inward and, you, and that used to be me, man, for sure. Before I had kids, 100%, that was me. 
And I think if you look inward, I think the more pure, and I don't want to apply this to everyone, but I think sometimes there's an opportunity to say, well, I just want to make music for the rest of my life. Now we're talking about a higher calling, about being a part of something larger than yourself. When you pursue forms of passive income, whether that means putting songs on Soundstripe or Audio Jungle or buying houses and renting them, all of a sudden it gets interesting because now you suddenly have a base income that you can rely on and you actually can make music for a living for the rest of your life if you know that you can deal with the ebb and flow of this industry and of your clients. That's super interesting. And if your dream is to make music for the rest of your life, as opposed to just to have people respect you, then that gets really, really interesting where you can say, oh, I'm working on this project that will hopefully make me $400 a month because I'm renting this little house in this neighborhood and that's $400 I don't have to make. And if I lose a client for an entire month, I still have something to fall back on. That's not a job. That's not like, oh, I have to you know, balance my time between the two of those. So I think this passive income conversation is really, really interesting because it can enable you to do what you'd rather be doing that you would do for free if you didn't need the money, which is make music for a living. All right, let's move on to the fifth and final type of income for audio professionals, and that is partnership profit sharing. Chris, what do you mean by this? Well, I'm a little bit of a radical. And when I no say- way. Yeah, yes way. So I use organic deodorant and- You won't we, let your kids- drink anything or eat anything with red food dye. Red food dye. And I also, this is going to sound weird. I don't entirely believe in employment. And here's why. When you employ somebody and you pay them money, I know this sounds, this is super out of left field. So just bear with me here. When you employ somebody for money, their goal is to not get fired. If it's, I will pay you X amount. And regardless of your performance, whether you do a great job whether you do an absolutely terrible job, worst case scenario is I fire you. Best case scenario is I don't fire you. I have a problem with that. And, you know, we've talked at length about this, Brian, about I'm fascinated by profit sharing models because it aligns interests. There's one guy in particular, my head mix engineer, who I do this with a ton and we do a split. So when somebody, when he does work for me, uh, we share in the profits of that project. And I love that because he's motivated for the same things to happen that I am. So he wants the client to come back for more and I want the client to come back for more. If I just paid him a salary, he wouldn't really care if the client came back or not. And not that he's not an amazing guy. He's awesome. But for us, it's amazing to be in a situation where we want the exact same things. And that's what profit sharing does. So if you're in a position where you are able to create a partnership with somebody else. It might be somebody way younger than you. It might be somebody else who uh, has way different skills than you. You know, there's a business, uh, I won't name who they are, but I'm real, um, that I'm pretty familiar with, who they offer um, audio mixing and mastering. One guy does the audio mixing and mastering and another guy and their equal partners is like the business manager. He takes care of all the marketing. He takes care of all the website stuff, all the systems, all the programming, et cetera. So in a situation like that, they're both equally interested in the same thing because they share in the profits. So I think when you have a situation like that, it dramatically changes the type of income you're making because someone else is looking out for you. Someone else is watching your back because they want the same things you do. And if they see you do something 
that they think will generate less revenues for the business as a whole, they'll say something. They don't need to be afraid of being fired. What they need to be afraid of is making less money by you making a mistake. But this idea of where there's mutual benefit for partners, it gets really, really interesting because they're both running in the same direction. And so often with so many of the entrepreneur friends that I have that are all about hire more people, hire more people, hire more people, they're constantly saying, oh, I'm just... I wish our workers worked harder or I wish they did better work or, or I want to be like, guys, the problem is that they want something different than what you want. They just want to not get fired and you want them to excel. And then you want to be the only person that benefits from them doing a better job. And maybe you'll give them a 2% raise at the end of the year or something like that. That's just not motivating enough for people. Yeah. If you want someone to take ownership of their position, and look out for the best interest of the business that you're running. Yeah. This is a great way to do that. Yeah. So this might not seem like a type of income and it might seem a little strange that we're including this on, on this episode, but in my experience, in my opinion, and again, I'm a weird hippie. So, you know, take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. I think that our employment model globally in, in our country is a little weird because we have interests that are unaligned between employer and employee. So if I have any say in the matter, my hope is to not really grow employees over the long term. There are some people, my assistant is not an employee, she's a contractor, but we also have a profit sharing model. The more projects I book in a month, the more she makes per hour the next month. I'm going to play a slight devil's advocate here. Please, please do. I love to do this with you. I want to mention something though, that you're not taking into account when you say you don't like employees or you, you like partners over employees. And the reality, in my opinion, is this. Me as the business owner, I take on all the risk, meaning if the business fails, I fail, I lose everything, and then I have to go work at Arby's. And I don't know why I chose Arby's, but that's where I would go in, in a failure situation in my mind. But my employee, they didn't take the same risks that I took. They didn't do the same work to build the business the, the way I have. And so to give them, and, and, I, and I understand you like to do a smaller revenue model that gives alliance goals, but at the end of the day, an employee works for a company because they don't typically, not always, but typically they don't want to take the risks associated with being an entrepreneur. This is true. They don't want to take the risks of that up and down income. They don't want to take the fate of their income in their own hands. They want to get that steady paycheck that's safe, that's secure. And there are just certain personality types that would rather get less money, but it's a secure, safe, guaranteed income versus a profit share where their income could fluctuate. And there's just certain personalities that fluctuate that they gravitate more towards that less income, more security type situation. And that's why I think employment has, has existed for hundreds of years, because there's always going to be people that would rather take that steady paycheck versus being a risky type person and be the profit sharing model type. So I, that's just my two cents for devil's advocate there. I appreciate that. And I, I'm open to changing my position on this at some point. I hope I never do. But my, my kind of pushback on that, I live for conversations like this. Yeah. My pushback on that is, yes, employment has existed for a couple hundred years, but what we do well as humans, better than any creature that's probably ever lived, with the exception of maybe like viruses and bacteria and stuff like that, is that we grow to the needs of our environment. If it's really, really, really cold, we're going to figure out a way as humans to eke it out. And you look at the Inuit people and you know, Alaska and, and, you know, really, really far north in Canada and stuff like that. But then you look at these 
you know, that other people that live in the rainforest in South America, they figured that out. And you look at people that live in the desert in Africa, they figured it out. I really think that human beings, what we do well, our superpower is that we grow to our environment. And when you create an employment situation with somebody, you don't take advantage of the best part of humanity, which is that humans will grow to meet their own needs. So what I love about the profit sharing model is it takes advantage of something that predates the invention of employment, this desire to opt out of the free market and opt out of you know risk. And it taps into something that was, depending on you know, what you believe, probably millions of years of humanity. So I think it's the base function of humanity. And I'm not saying, let me be clear here. I'm not saying that what I think should happen is that you should have someone who assumes all the risk, you know, the primary entrepreneur, and that everybody else that is a partner experiences the same benefits as the primary entrepreneur. I'm not saying that at all. I think that there should be an appropriate profit sharing model in that regard. But I don't know. I think that this, to pull myself back on topic here, I think when you are doing a partnership, when you find two people or three people or four people or whatever who have complementary skills and you align all of their interests, crazy things can happen. And I had a thought pop that popped into my head as you were talking about that. It's, you know, if you're building a business, you're right about having to have everyone's goals aligned. and there's always going to be people in the world that don't want any sort of fluctuation, don't want any sort of risk, and they're willing to take less pay. But going back to what you said earlier, I think a lot of those people are the type of person that are working in order to not get fired. And if you look for the people that are willing to take a job that does have maybe a little bit of fluctuation or that they have to work a little bit harder in order to earn their keep, but there's a lot more upside for them to meaning they could earn more if they're willing to put in the work into the business. Yeah. That's going to attract a completely different person. And that's probably the type of person you want to have working for you because- that's the type of person that's willing to take their fate into their own hands. And at the end of the day, that type of person is going to be a much better employee than someone who would call themselves an employee versus a partner. Yeah. And that's exactly what we do with my assistant. She has a minimum pay that she will make. She's either not working for me or she's working for me and making a minimum. If she does a great job and helps me win more clients, then her pay can only go up true. from there. But then if her performance tapers off, then she would make a little bit less, but never below her floor. So let's bring this to you know our listeners. Most of our listeners have some sort of home studio. They typically work with artists, although there are some voiceover artists, there are some podcast editors. There's, there's an assortment of people, but generally what are some ways that they can look to this fifth and final income area of profit sharing? How does this look in their businesses? Well, let me present a situation. Let's say that you are running a recording studio and that you spend an awful lot of time editing. And you are, let's say, 30 years old. You then meet a 25-year-old who's not quite as far along as you are, but is very talented. And you're met with a choice. You can say, man, I need to focus more. I need to major in my majors and minor in my minors. I need to niche down. This editing work still needs done on all our projects. So I'm going to pay this person X number of dollars per hour to do the editing. You can do that. That's one choice. When you do that, there's no incentive for the person to finish quickly. Their incentive, if you're paying them hourly, is to take as long as they possibly can. And most people aren't pure evil. No, they're not. They're not going to do that. But they're also not going to bust their ass out to knock it out in half the amount of time. Exactly. So you could pay them hourly to do that, or you could pay them a percentage of the project. And they've taken on some more risk because they might suddenly have to do a little bit more work if their revisions got rejected or you know that more editing was needed or whatnot. 
but they're going to be in a situation where they can suddenly, there's an incentive to excel beyond just a pat on the back or you're fired. So I think in a situation like that, where this is really applicable is if there are people who can do some of the things that you do, but you can't afford to pay them, when you partner with them, you're minimizing your downside. It's not like if you hire someone and say, hey, I'm going to pay you $20 an hour to edit for me. You get your, their edit back and you're like, oh gosh, I can't use this. It's terrible. You still owe them. Or if it took them 10 hours to edit something that would have taken you two, now suddenly you're like, ah, crap. I'm liable and I have to pay them. If it's a profit sharing model, you're not taking on the liability of if they don't deliver, then I am responsible for paying them. It's you need to try again. You're editing this too rigidly, like stop being such a grid whore, you know, in, <laughs> in Pro term. Tools. So there's an opportunity there when you both assume a little bit of risk where you aren't responsible to pay them no matter what. And that, that's, man, as far as business skills go, that's hard to analyze the situation and say, I'm going to take on a bunch of risk trying to do a deal with somebody. And then I'm also going to take on some more risk paying someone that I hope can do some of this work for me. And no matter what, even if I can't get more deals, I still have to keep paying them. That's a big risk. When you do a partnership, you can say, hey, I've got a project. I want to work with you on it. I'm willing to give you X percentage. What do you think? If they're like, yes, let's go for it. Then I think they will grow to fit their environment, at least eventually, especially in a small project. I want to talk about one other area that this profit sharing model works. And that is if you have a larger facility, you have extra space, you have somewhere that uh, some another engineer could set up shop. Uh, if you go back and listen to episode 13, Billy Decker worked out of a nice studio. I think it was Blackbird Studios. And they just took a percentage of the project. And that was a profit sharing model. And so eventually, you know, the number became too high for him to pay. And he moved out to a place that was just the straight rent. But during the time, their goals were aligned. Billy was getting as many projects as he could take on because the more he got, the more he made. And then the studio won because the more he got in there, the more they got paid for that space. And so if you have an extra space, instead of just renting it out to someone for a flat fee, you may just give them a space for a percentage and let them keep bringing more and more clients and your goals are aligned in that situation. Now, this doesn't always work. Sometimes you just want the flat monthly payment as more of a passive income model, but this is just something to consider. Yeah. And back to the Billy thing that's so interesting is let's talk about the liability that Billy avoided and the liability that Blackbird avoided by doing this deal. Blackbird was not on the hook for payroll each month for Billy. That was less risk for them. It helped them keep the doors open. Billy was not on the hook for rent. If he went for a month with no clients, he might risk getting kicked out, but he wasn't responsible for paying for the space during that time. That is a win-win situation. Yeah. And if you go back to our, is it the last episode, the negotiation episode, the whole point of negotiating, of trying to do a deal with somebody is to find a situation that is a win-win. Yep. Episode 30 was the negotiation episode, two episodes ago. Yeah. So Billy's deal, eventually Billy grew out of it. But how cool is that, that they both were able to lower their own liability? Liability is the risk that something bad would happen to you. And come up with a win-win situation. So there are so many opportunities for those of you listening to this podcast for you to find ways in your businesses to align interests with other partners and minimize your liability, possibly increase their liability more than if they had been an employee, but potentially even, you know, like in Billy's situation, you might lower their liability if you're, you know, doing like a rental agreement like that. 
So let's go ahead and wrap this episode up uh, of the five different types of studio income for audio professionals. The first is huge one-off projects. That's big things like albums or movies or insert $10,000 or $5,000 project here. You know, that type of ideal client that everyone seems to want. The second is small one-off projects. That's, you know, small sub $500 projects. And you're ideally trying to get a lot of those uh, and building up your amount of projects you're doing there. The third type of income is repeat customers. This is having customers come back to you repeatedly over their careers or consistently from month to month to month. Things like uh, podcast editing, things like, you know, an artist coming to you once a month for 10 songs instead of like an entire album. Number four is passive income. These are things like royalties, things like real estate, things like sync licensing. Number five in the fifth and final one is partnership profit sharing. This is where you have your goals aligned with the people that you work with so that you're both striving towards the same thing. And for most businesses, that's more income. Anything you want to add as we wrap up here, Chris? Man, I just got to highlight number five. I love the profit sharing model. And if you know, some people are like, I'm a hippie, I'm a socialist. I'm not. I'm a hippie. I am a profit sharing lover. And man, I feel like there are so many opportunities for listeners and for businesses in general across the globe in that profit sharing model. If you can be in a situation where if you're not great at marketing and you find a partner who is and you guys do a profit sharing model, all of a sudden a skill that you don't have is part of your business overnight, instantaneously. And that is massively powerful. It cannot be underestimated. And last thing here I got to point out is the profit sharing model seems a little weird to us out here and, you know, outside of Silicon Valley, but within Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley, within Silicon Valley, (laughs) the, the biggest, most fastest growing companies in the world have all done a profit sharing model. All of them, Uber, Facebook, Apple, you name it. Airbnb. Airbnb, yeah. These companies that have grown crazy fast have split the equity between multiple people in order to get people on the team and align their interests. So in our industry, it seems to be really rare to find people that are all about the profit sharing model. It tends to be a lot more self-focused. So I would say for many people that there's a huge opportunity there, huge opportunity as far as profit sharing and finding a way, reference our last episode, negotiation, finding a way to create a win-win situation. Silicon Valley. That's uh, that's Orange County. That's LA. (laughs) That's Malibu. I like that joke. I like that joke. Silicon. Silicon. (laughs) It's amazing. All right, stop recording. We're done.